Good? Mm -hmm. So I always think what makes dialogue interesting is having contra contrarian thoughts. Okay, so <laughs> Russ said some things that were pretty interesting. I don't necessarily feel the same way. I don't necessarily feel as though it's a privilege. And sometimes, quite frankly, it's a total pain in the ass. <laughs> and that's the thing. We, I always think people in these rooms, way too, they, they rely too heavily on feelings. I didn't, it didn't feel right, so I didn't do it. Right? I'm not feeling connected to God, so I must be disconnected from God. Can you think of a group of people that have misused feelings worse than people in 12-step recovery program there's no great there, there's there's no there's no group of people that have misused the idea the sensation feelings as a barometer for how well they're doing mm -hmm. everybody else nobody measures anybody on their feelings there's no there, nobody's he felt great his whole life no no they they talk about the things that you did your whole life Right? So, and our, our book tells us that we are unable to distinguish the true from the false. We use the problem as the solution. Right? We are, we are, there's something wrong. So there's, there's nothing wrong with feeling like this is a total pain in the ass and so inconvenient and I don't want to do it and doing it anyway. There's nothing wrong with that. Right? It'll, eventually it'll come. So I just want to, in case anybody, may, I'm, I'm probably the only person here that feels this way. But just in case wait, you are. Wait, I didn't say it ain't a pain in a rear end. Okay, but I'm just saying, <laughs> uh, what, I, what I'm saying is, if, even if you don't, even if it doesn't feel good, mm -hmm. there's no excuse not to do it because the benefit is always going to come. Mm -hmm. And, and again, that is the, the, the reward comes as the end of the thing. We don't have to feel that way. We don't have to feel positive about it going into it. We just have to do it. And like I, I referenced before, how I couldn't remember my problem, that has almost be, always been my experience. Can I ask a question? Yes. So I think that's a big thing is people are afraid and they want to have, they want to have a feel-good experience. Can you maybe talk about maybe the first couple sponsees you guys sponsored and how frightening that was or mistakes that you made that you realize you just learned from or anything like that so people who are starting to sponsor understand that some more. Sure. Okay. <laughs> Russ is dying the same thing. No, I'm great. I love this. This is awesome with everybody. My first sponsee is still with me. I love this man. He's spectacular. He's 80 years old now, has Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, and the guy don't miss not one time. He's, he's right there. I love him. I can't tell him how much I love him. And uh, he's just awesome. And I have another sponsor. He was my first guy. So, yes, I made a ton of mistakes. I made a ton of mistakes going through. And I was trained. My sponsor, like, he was, he didn't, he still don't play. He's just like, get to the point, do it. Just kind of like what you said, you know. Don't think about it. Just do the work. Shut up and do it. And, uh, it wasn't really challenging. It, it was just, it was great. I learned a lot about myself with my first sponsee. And um, I just, I'm just happy and just talking about that. I'm happy that he's still with me, you know, because I got fired plenty of times, you know. Um, I find with, with, with some of my guys, the, the more, I don't want to say, okay, the older guys, the guys more mature, whatever you want to say. 
they uh, there's a there's a seriousness about them. You know, they've been through life, they've seen certain things, and they don't have the answer for this. And they they just do what they need to do to get through. You know, and it's, it's beautiful. They're they're awesome. Some of my younger guys that I had, I guess they didn't eat enough. Or they weren't, you know, they weren't, uh, there's fear, you know, I, I, we're all fearful, right? You know, I, I, I didn't get, I don't get mad. I'm not going to get emotional about it. It's just what it is, you know. I do my best and let God do the rest. And uh, I, I do see some of my frustrations are when, when um, we get close, you know, to the fourth step, obviously, and the fifth step. There's a lot of fear that surrounds it. And, you know, I can only go by what was given to me. You know, my sponsor said, let's not be emotional about it. Just be honest, short and sweet, and let's get through it. And I, I had to take that, you know, <laughs> I'm a chiropractor, right? And in chiropractic school, we had to dissect cadavers, right, for a year. And people were tripping. Oh, my gosh. Oh, heaven. And my mindset was like, these people gave their bodies to science. This is purely school. I'm not going to get grossed out. I'm just going to be unemotional. I'm going to respect these bodies and learn from them. And I had to take that type of mentality when it came to that. I didn't put the emotion. I, I, I was truthful in, in the fourth step. And getting to the fifth step, I just said what I needed to say. I see this with a lot of sponsees. When we get to that point, there's a hesitance and, and fear. But the guys get through it, and man, they do spectacular. That's the challenge that I see, that fourth and fifth step. Um, and jumping steps. Like, you know, they want to get out and, uh, you know, start making amends to people before, you know, they're truly ready or, you know, you know, it's a process. That's why there's 12 steps. You know, that's why they're in succession. You got to, you know, we, we can't. For me, the way I tinker to make things real cute, that got me into programs. So, you know. I couldn't do that for myself, and it's written that way for a reason. It's the, the program's that way for a reason, you know. And people want to jump around; it's really difficult sometimes. They're my they're my challenges, but I pray for my guys, you know. I hope they pray for me because I need it. Yeah, I just say so. Uh, I've had I've sponsored people in AA, and I've sponsored people in OA, and and uh, you know some of the mistakes that I've made is I'm the boss and you're the subordinate. Right, I'm gonna give you. I mean, I'm gonna sponsor people in L.A. Like, I'm gonna tell you what to eat, when to eat, and how to eat it. You know, and what I'll tell you what your abstinent, what your alcoholic foods are, um, and that's not our role. You know, we can't figure that. Um, the the most the 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 uh, the most effective, I think, course that I've taken is we just open up the book to the doctor's opinion and start reading. Right, and and we start following the the information that's in front of us. It's not my opinion. It's it's what's the twelve step recovery program, and it's really you can't and you really can't miss by doing that. And you know, so um, my the way that I sponsor people and have from the very beginning in, in Overeaters Anonymous is, you know, we start reading. Uh, we well at, at first. I do what was asked of me. I had to. I, I had to come up with a list of the alcoholic foods, the ingredients, and the behaviors that I need to abstain from. And I, and I had that list, and I put those down. And then when they were down, we start reading the doctor's opinion, and 
arrive at, at just ask some simple questions. Do you react like this? Do you have this, this same response? Right? Uh, um, are you convinced that you are a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety? Because right? when I came in here, I was 35, 40 pounds overweight. I wasn't 150 pounds overweight, right? I was, you know, I, 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 I was, I was, I was uh, a garden variety compulsive overeater. In, in society, I probably looked like a, 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 you know, let's just put it this way. I've been told, you know, what, what are you doing here? You know what I mean? Like, because it wasn't, it wasn't like uh, I, was, I was, you know, morbidly obese and my life was threatened. I was, ha- I was having serious conditions. And where was I going with that? Where I was going with that is that um, the program, the, the, the doctor's opinion helped me understand the condition and arrive at the conclusion. So I like to walk a sponsor through the doctor's opinion. Then get into more about alcoholism. Let them read Bill's story. Talk about from in Bill's story what they relate to, what they don't relate to. And there's some really important things in Bill's story that I like to re- refer to, like on, on page 13 and 14, where it says that dependence upon God and enough something to trust in the way things are were the essential requirements for recovery. Just point out some different things and just basically keep it from the book, right? Like my, like I had the worst sponsor on the face of this earth. She has never solved one of my problems. When I hear some of, when I hear some of the things that I hear people, you know, go through with their sponsor, I'm saying to myself, why didn't I have one of those sponsors? You know, they're all skipping hand in hand to the sunlight of the spirit, right? My sponsor says, that sounds like fear. What do we do with fear? Well, let's go look and see what it says in the book and what fear says, right? That sounds like you have a resentment. Let's see what we do with, a resent, with, with, with resentment, right? It's the number one offender. Like she didn't solve one of my, she didn't solve one problem for me. And, and that's like, like, like I think, like we have a tendency to want to rush in, like we're triaging somebody, right? Let me solve this problem for you. And what we're doing is we deprive the person of the experience and the pain that's necessary to grow. Without pain, I don't know about you, but I don't grow in comfort, right? I don't grow when things are going well. I grow when things are difficult. When I have to face adversity and I face challenges and I get through those and I look at that adversity and that challenge as an opportunity to demonstrate my God's love, my God's will, my God's way of life. And then I get through those things and that, ha- that builds character, right? And that builds my relationship with the God of my understanding. If someone was to come in and solve my problem for me, I'd be deprived of that pain. And pain may be the only asset that the sufferer has. Now, who, how could, how, we can't deprive somebody of that experience. We may be killing them. I say we, you know, a lot of times in these rooms, like we kill people with kindness, right? Where everything's gonna be okay. It's all right. Um, the last thing also, so, so the, a lot of mis- some, some mistakes I've made, I've had people that, you know, they started on this journey and then they picked up food and then I fired them. And I, and, and I think I, 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 I did them an injustice because I, when I look back and I think about, you know, how in the big book they worked with Jim six times, half a dozen times, right? Bill went through what everything that he went through and they still stuck with him. 
right? And there were people that I know I worked with and we went a long way. And then for some reason or another, they consumed some kind of alcoholic ingredient and the phenomenal craving kicked in. And when the phenomenal craving kicked in, they're, they're, they're done, right? It's not their fault at that. It's their fault for picking up. But when that kicks in, I can't condemn them. It's not me to condemn them. And I let those people go. And I think that we could have had a, we, we, we could have continued to work together like the original AA members continued to work with other folks. Now, I'm not, I don't advocate for, you know, several instances of that occurring, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's right. Like, I, I don't think that it's, it's appropriate to uh, turn my back on that person for, for picking up you know, the, the, the one time or the two times. I'd like to look at it. Look, they work with, was it Jim or Fred? They work with a half a dozen times. Jim, they work with a half a dozen times. So I say, okay, well, you got a half a dozen times. That means half a dozen times you didn't show up when we were supposed to talk. Half a dozen times you didn't, maybe you, you found a, a new substance that caused a phenomenal craving. We'll start over again, but it's a half a dozen times, right? That, that's that's kind of like my guideline. The other thing I like to do is, I, and I think to think when, when, Ebby went to see Bill. He was sober for two months with the Oxford group. So that means in my mind that in two, he went from step one to step to our step 12 in two months. Mm -hmm. We should be able to work in two months to get through this 12 step recovery program, like to get through these 12 steps. And I, I kind of use that as a guideline. But really, you can't go wrong by, the, by following the literature and not trying to deprive anybody of what they have to go through. There was, there was something you said that I just wanted to share. Like, you know, like we, can't, you know we, we can't take shifts on people and all. You know, one of the best things my sponsor ever told me, because, when, you know, I guess it was pink cloud, whatever you want to say, the first, once I got through the stuff, oh, my gosh, you're the greatest. I appreciate everything you did for me. I just was grateful, right? And I'll never forget the text. He said, I will fail you. And it put everything in perspective. And he has, uh, uh, the point of what I'm getting at is that, you know, my reliance isn't on my sponsor. There's nothing that he can really do for me. You know, he's taught me, he's held my hand, he's brought me through things. But it's, he's always showing me God. You know, he's always showing me that reliance and dependence on God. And, um. I try to say that with my sponsees. Like, there ain't, look, I'm just screwed up as you. I ain't better than you. You know, I'm just, I'm a junkie. That's what I really am. And uh, I just have a little thing that someone gave me. I stole, and it gave me some relief, and I'm going to share it with you. So, like, Pete, um, when people, when my uh, sponsee is just not, uh, relapses or falling off, it's not working. I, I, I owe it to them to keep trying. You know, there, there does come a point when it's, look, you know, we've been through this four times. You know, you're not ready yet. You're not ready, you didn't eat, you didn't eat enough. Or, and I'm not trying to be harsh. I'm not trying to be an asshole. I'm just trying to say, look, you're not, you didn't eat enough, you're not broken enough because you, your will is still there. You still want to do what you want to do. And that's not how this program works. So, yeah. Like most people, we have found that we can take our big lumps as they come. But also like others, we often discover the greater challenges in the lesser and more continuous problems of life. Our answer is still more spiritual development. 
Only by this means can we improve our chances for really happy and useful living. And as we grow spiritually, we find that our old attitudes toward our instincts need to undergo drastic revisions. Our desire for emotional security and wealth, for personal prestige and power, for romance and for family satisfaction, all these have to be tempered and redirected. We have learned that the satisfaction of instincts cannot be the sole end and aim of our lives. If we place instincts first, we have got the cart before the horse. We shall be pulled backward into disillusionment. But when we are willing to place spiritual growth first, then and only then do we have real chance, have a real chance. That's pretty heavy, right? Like, because me, satisfaction of my instincts is really with the driving factor of all these things. And, 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 you know, I have heard in meetings over time, you know, all of the material things I, you know, cherish, you know, those are the things that are keeping me from becoming spiritually fit, right? Like, the, all my things are, you know, the, the more I value things are keeping me from being spiritual fit. And if anybody feels that way and you have any things that you want to discard, I'll gladly take them right after the meeting. Just let me know where you are. <laughs> what I want to get at, the, the point I'm trying to make is, like the, and, and this again is as Pete sees it, is that there is nothing wrong with the pursuit of the material things and the, and the, and the objectives that I want to accomplish in my life. There's nothing, those are instincts that the Creator put in me that I can pursue them all I want, right? Because that's what's in me. But if, if they come before my spiritual growth, if, they are, if those things are the things that drive me, like right now I own a lot of shit. I own a lot of stuff. But I own it all. Before I got into this program, it all owned me. It all was the indicator of you know, my well-being. Right? The, no, that's not, that, that's not it. My spiritual, the, the, the fact that I, that I decided or, or I was inspired to accomplish something is just a demonstration of my God's love, my God's will, and my God's way of life. And there's nothing wrong with the pursuit of those things. Those are instincts that God gave me. But they have to, the spiritual part of this has got to be the driving factor. And that's, what, and that's the way I like to, I like to live today. I don't want to feel guilty about the fact that I want to be promoted at work and I want to make more money and I want to provide a nice life for my family. Like those things are all in order, right? Because the most important thing is that I'm connected and related and growing in, uh, uh, toward closer to the God of my understanding. Those things in my mind, right? In the third step, in the third step prayer, it says, Relieve me of bondage of self and take away my difficulties that victory over them will bear witness to others of thy will, thy love, and thy way of life, right? So the problems are the opportunity to demonstrate the power and the love of the God of my understanding. So, you know, those things are all welcomed, right, when these obstacles come. You want to read? (laughs) After we come to AA... If we go on growing, our attitudes and actions towards security, emotional security, and financial security commence to change profoundly. Our demand for emotional security for our own way had constantly thrown us into unworkable relations with other people. Though we were sometimes quite unconscious of this, the result always had been the same. 
Either we had tried to play God and dominate those about us, or we had insisted on being over-dependent upon them. Where people had temporarily let us run their lives as though they were still children, we had felt very happy and secure and felt very happy and secure ourselves. But when we finally resisted or ran away, we were bitterly hurt and disappointed. We blamed them, being quite unable to see that our unreasonable, unreasonable demands had been the cause. When we had taken the opposite tact and had insisted, like infants ourselves, that people protect and take care of us, or that the world owed us a living, then the result had been equally unfortunate. This often caused the people we had loved most to push us aside, or perhaps desert us entirely. Our disillusionment had been hard to hear, to bear. We couldn't imagine people acting that way towards us. We had failed to see that though adult in years, we were still behaving childishly, trying to turn everybody, friends, wives, husbands, even the world itself, into protect, protective parents. We had refused to learn the very hard lesson that overdependence upon people is unsuccessful because all people are fallible. And even the best of them will sometimes let us down, especially when our demands for attention become unreasonable. Isn't that me? I look at that and hear that. That's wrecked a lot of people along the way. And put my, I put myself in many relationships that just, you know, whether, whether I was dominating or I was subordinate or codependent to someone. And it messed up a lot of, a lot of things. You know, could it be the, the disease? You know, me eating, not making good choices? Or just how it played out? You know, because I was, because I wanted what I wanted out of it. And uh, it's tough looking back, you know, looking back, but you know, we don't, got to move forward right yeah that what that says to me is that there gives me two warnings i cannot be overly dependent on people and i can't let myself be overly dependent on by people i can't be the source of somebody's peace of mind and well-being right i can't be i can't be the 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 go-to guy right i'm a i'm a i'm a alcoholic compulsive overeater right and that that's it that's it. That, 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 you know, I can give guidance and share my experience, but I cannot let you become overly dependent on me, and I can't be overly dependent on any one individual. You know, I, I treat people like they're my drug of choice. You know what I mean? Right? I get one person, right? I'm in this relationship with one person, and that's going to be, and I cut, get rid of everybody else, right? And this, this is my rock. This is it. Right? And if that falls apart, I'm left with just me. If I don't have, if I don't, if my trust and dependence isn't coming from a power greater than myself, then I'm screwed. The other, the other thing that it also tells me is that there needs to, I need to have several significant relationships in my life. Several significant relationships within my life. Like I said, I treat them like they're, you know, my, sta you know, my stash of potato chips, right? Like, uh, uh, no, I have to have multiple, multiple people. The healthy people have significant relationships in their lives, right? I talk to Russ. I talk to other men, right, from, 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 from the other group that I attend to. I have, you know, all of the people in my life are on this path. Right? It talks about the road to happy destiny, right? Mm -hmm. There's a pretty good chance 
if you're on the road to happy destiny and someone else I know is on the road to happy destiny and I can touch them, I could see them, it's a pretty good chance I'm on the road to happy destiny, even though I don't know it, right? Because that road to happy destiny often isn't marked. There aren't street signs. You're on the road to happy destiny, right? But there's a pretty good chance if these other people are, if I'm with those people, right, I'm going to be on the road to happy destiny. It's a good, it's a good navigator, right? As we made spiritual progress, we saw through these fallacies. It became clear that if we were, we were ever, if we ever were to, to feel emotionally secure among grown-up people, we would have to put our lives on a give-and-take basis. We would have to develop the sense of being in partnership or brotherhood with all those around us. We saw that we would need to be give constantly of ourselves without demands for repayment. When we persistently did this, we gradually found that people were attracted to us as never before. And even if they failed us, we could be understanding and not too seriously affected. Um, it, it, it is, it's all about relationships. You know, these, these things, this, this hits me really uh, in my heart because I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go around a corner with this one, right? So, you know, throughout my life, I was lucky, you know, I was blessed. Even through the worst times in disease, from my childhood all the way up until now, I have such good friends, beautiful relationships, you know, and, and some of them suffered because of it, but, you know, for the most part, I can't lie to you. I have people that share little fragments of their life with me, and it's just, there's just a connection with them. I'm, I'm blessed. But now being through the program, right, you know, one, one, I could see what that was, you know, where, where they are. With them. And now I value that so much more and how blessed I truly am to have this, this knit group, group of people. That now I got my people from OA, my family from OA. It's just, that's like, it's like, and, and it's not, but I've learned through all this that, like Pete is saying, and here, it's like, these relationships are with human beings. You know, we're not, we're not with perfect people. So uh, allowances have to be made. And for years, I only wanted my allowances. You know what I mean? I, you know, I just want you to forgive me for what I did. And I would hold, I would harbor resentments and, and hurts and against others. And I'm realizing, like, they're just like me. You know, these beautiful relationships. They're just like, they're human beings. So it's like, I'm learning, and I, I, it's, I've been gifted this, that now I'm starting to be able to just be, you know, status quo with that. Just accept love, accept and tolerate people, which is, uh, for me, that's not an easy thing to do. That's a lot of reason why I, I expended so much energy on resentments that pushed me to the food. I mean, just robbed hours and hours of my life. And now, because of this and this, this way of life and, you know, trying to keep it even keeled and accepting and loving, it's just much more fruitful. You know, I use my time better and I'm blessed because of that is what I'm saying. Okay. Sorry, I keep going. You're, good, you're doing great. <laughs> when we developed still more, we discovered the best possible source of emotional stability to be God himself. We found that dependence upon his perfect justice, forgiveness, and love was healthy and that it would work where nothing else would. If we really depended upon God, we couldn't very well play God to our fellows, nor would we feel the urge to wholly 
um, urge wholly to rely on human protection and care. These were the new attitudes that finally brought many of us inner strength and peace that could not be deeply shaken by the shortcomings of others or by any calamity not of our own making. This new outlook was, we learned, something especially necessary for alcoholics, for alcoholism had been a lonely business, even though we had been surrounded by people who loved us. But when self-will self had driven everybody away and our isolation had become complete, it caused us to play the big shot in cheap bar rooms and then far fare forth alone on the street to depend upon the charity of passerby. We were still trying to find emotional security by, dominate, by being dominating or dependent on others. Even when our fortunes had not ebbed that much and we nevertheless found ourselves alone in the world, we still vainly tried to be secure by some unhealthy kind of domination or dependence. For those of us who were like that, AA had a very special meaning. Through it, we begin to learn right relations with people who understand us. We don't have to be alone anymore. Most married folks in AA have a happy home, to a surprising extent. AA has offset the damage to family life brought about by years of alcoholism. But just like all other societies, we do have sex and marital problems, and sometimes they are distressingly acute. Permanent marriage breakups and separations, however, are unusual in AA. Our main problem, again, this was written a long time ago. Our main problem is not how we are to stay married. It is how we become happily married by eliminating the severe emotional twists that have so often stemmed from alcoholism. Nearly every sound human being experiences at some point in life a compelling desire to find a mate of the opposite sex or the same sex with whom the fullest possible union can be made. I added that just so you know. Spiritual, <laughs> mental, emotional, and physical. This mighty urge is the root of great human accomplishments, a creative energy that deeply influences our lives. God fashioned us that way. So our question will be this, how, by ignorance, compulsion, and self-will, do we misuse this gift for our own destruction? We AAs cannot pretend to offer full answers to age-old perplexities, but our own experience does provide certain answers that work for us. When alcoholism, alcoholism strikes, very unnatural situations may develop which work against marriage partnerships and compatible union. If the man is affected, the wife is, must become the head of house, often the breadwinner. As matters get worse, the husband becomes sick and irresponsible, Become, I'm sorry, the, the, as matters get worse, the husband becomes a sick and irresponsible child who tends to be looked after and extricated from the endless scrapes and impasses. Very gradually, and usually without any realization of the fact, the wife is forced to become the mother of an earring boy. And if she had a strong material instinct to begin with, the situation is aggravated. Obviously, not much partnership can exist under those conditions. The wife usually goes on doing the best she knows how, but meanwhile, the alcoholic alter alternately loves and hates her maternal care. A pattern is thereby established that may take a lot of undoing later on. Nevertheless, under the 
influences of AA's 12 steps, these situations are often set right. And there's an asterisk that talks about the development of another fellowship associated with AA and OA, that's uh, Al-Anon. When the distortion has been great, however, a long period of patient striving may be necessary. After the husband joins AA, the wife may become discontented, even highly resentful that Alcoholics Anonymous has done the very thing that all her years of devotion had failed to do. Her husband may become so warped in AA, so wrapped in AA, and his new friends that he inconsiderately, that he is inconsiderately away from the home more than when he was drunk. Seeing her unhappiness, he recommends AA 12 steps and, she, and he tries to teach her how to live. She naturally feels that for years she has made a far better job of living than he has. Both of them blame each other and ask when their marriage is ever going to be happy again. They may even begin to suspect it had never been a good place, a good in the first place. That's oh always God. very... It's Captain AA right there. Oh my gosh, it's... <laughs> Because honestly, this is this is me. That's the reason why I came. It wasn't about the food. It's about my family. It's about my wife and my kids, and the dest- destruction I created. You know, and and now I'm Mr. AA, OA, Big Book Dude. You know, <laughs> I solve everybody's problems. Now I can tell her where she's selfish, dishonest, resentful, and fearful. <laughs> you know, and. It's, it's it's just so funny because you can get wrapped up in it and the, that those paragraphs speak for itself. You could just put my face on that one because this is what it was. And then you know I got involved. I'm getting free of the food. Things are changing. I'm turning into a different man. My wife is like looking at me with trepid. This ain't the same dude. Like you know, and she don't know if to trust me or not. If to go all in again because. At some point, you know I'm going to let her down, and then all the past is going to come back. And this happened multiple times. And then she looks at me, dude, I used to prepare meals for you every night. You know, I made sure you could get up when your ass was sick like this, and you, you were just floundering in your business, and I was working my tail off raising four kids at the time, right? And you had to, I had to nurse you back to health. You know, this, that's me right there. And then I... I get on a phone meeting, I got a couple face-to-face meetings, I'm recovered, I got sponsees. And she's like, this son of a bitch. You know, I, 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 20 years I was with this guy. And now he goes, gets a new group of friends, now he's a whole new man. I just got to accept this, just the way it is. You know, whether, whether it's deep down she feels that she couldn't do it, or, you know, there's times she said, you know, I'll never have you. I'll never have, fully have you, because you always have something else. And uh, that, that's me, you know, and it, you can get tangled in it. And there was some rough patches, rough patches with these relationships with my wife. But on, on a better note, you know, I see God's hand in these things. As long as I keep diligent in, 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 in working my, my program, sponsees, going to meetings, like there's a different, there's a little gleam in her eye, gleam in my eye now. It's a different thing now. Something's changing. But it's only because of this work. And even having to go through that, go through this, those issues that were never talked about, of how she had to nurse me back to health, how, how I robbed her of taking, taking care of my kids, you know, how I controlled a lot of things. Even through that, see, this, this is where the amends and all that jazz comes in. But that's how God could restore that seeming, seemingly hopeless situation, you know. 
So, sorry. I, I see. No, that's good. I was, I, I, I relate to this, you know, I, I was, uh, the first time I was in OA, I was, uh, I was single. Uh, and we're going to talk about that in a couple paragraphs about boy meeting girl on AA's campus. And then the, the, when I, when I, when I uh, returned to OA and I really embraced this program and put down the food and became entirely absent, it was very, it was very you, know, you know, fortunately or unfortunately for me, my wife is an extremely giving and generous individual. There's not, a, there's not a selfish bone in her body, it feels like. Which, unfortunately for her, she met somebody who's an extremely selfish individual and a, ta- and a taker, right? Like, so uh, we were a match made in heaven. You know, it, it, I have to remember, uh, you know, I have, I have been so wrong about this program for so long. You know, like, I would, I would lose my, I would ask my wife to pick up something at the grocery store, and it wasn't the brand of the steel-cut oats that I want, and be like, she's trying to, you know, you're trying to, you know, get me off my, you know, this is the stuff I have to eat. So hypercritical, you know, this is so important. And two days later, I'm eating out of the garbage can. <laughs> it's true. Right? It's so true. I can't eat that, you know, which, uh, you, you got me something with bread in it, right? Three days later, I'm eating a pretzel, right? You know, like just the, just the, the, like what I put her through in this experience is, you know, with using the program in my mind as the, you know, the whipping post, you know, and, and it's just, you know, I just, I, I have to remember that, you know, like uh, that, that, uh, you know, I, I told my wife I was coming here three weeks ago. I'm going to be gone all Sunday morning. I have three boys. They're all within, I had, I had three kids in two years, right, by two different women. And my wife is, is I have, I have the, the American household. It's two parents and 2.5 kids. My son spends half the time with his mother and half the time with my, with my, my wife has, has, has been the caretaker for her stepson, the caretaker for my twin boys, she deserves, she's the primary concern in all of the things that I do because of what I, not, not that I can, I'm not making a living amends to my wife. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do as a member of Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm being a good example of these, of these principles in my home, in my occupations, in my affairs. I could never make up for what I, I could never make up for the emotional turmoil that I put her through. It'll never, I'll never amend it. I could never amend it. I just have to show up and do the things that I need to do. But it really is the, the, what she had to go through in this disease in the first eight years of our marriage is really, it's, 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 it's significantly unfortunate. I've made, I've, I've apologized where I did things, where I deprived her of things, I've provided her with those things, but I don't look at why I'm being today as making a living amends because this says I have to make direct amends. Can I ask a question? Sure. So one of the things that really hit me in there was that in recovery, you're, it says, I'm gonna paraphrase, away, I was way more in recovery than I was when I was in the food. And this program does require a lot of time, especially with you being in two programs. But, but how does the enthusiasm we have in the beginning when we're just like so immersed in it and our families do now become neglected and understanding that we neglected them when we were in disease, now we're neglecting them in recovery. Um, how did that manifest for you as you were early recovery and you're starting to sponsor and you're, and you're being pulled between direct amends to your family but also understanding that you have to get back in this program? So, um, 
you know, a couple of things. Like, so when I first started, atten I, I attend a meeting. It meets every day. It's a, on, a uh, on the phone. When I first started attending that, my kids were getting up and getting ready to go to school. But I was thinking to myself, well, I have to participate in the meeting because, well, the, you know, so all this stuff was going on in the, in the background. And I was thinking to myself, well, I have to sit in my office on my headphones listening to the meeting. And I have a chance somebody needs to I need to share something. And I had to come to the conclusion that I was depriving them of, the, of my presence. I play a role in that. Even though I don't, you know, fill the lunch boxes on some days, I have to. So, and then I realized that meeting's recorded every day. And it meets for a whole other hour that's not recorded after they've already gotten on the bus. Right? So I just, I, you know, I had, I had to, it's all trial and error, right? Like I had to, I, you know, by, by, by going back and seeing that, you know what, like maybe I could have been helpful in this situation and I, uh, and I attend to it. Here's the other thing is that I also like to, I like for me, movement is a big part. Like I feel like, like I have to move, right? So I could very easily say, well, my, my job will understand if I go take an hour at the gym and go to and, and, and exercise for an hour or go for a walk or something like that. Like I, I, I could do that. Well, no, I, I have a responsibility to my employer. So I get up two hours early to take care when everybody's sleeping. I do the things that I need to do to take care of myself. So I just prioritize my family responsibilities and then my re responsibilities as they relate to these programs. My wife and I have an understanding that, you know, like I am going to, now that the kids, my oldest is in middle school, he gets out of the house early before the meeting goes on so I can, I can participate in the meeting, but I had to prioritize that so I listened to, to things otherwise. But, um, you know, usually on Saturday, I go, that's when I go to my uh, home group and, and, uh, and then when I have something coming up, it's just like any other thing. Like we, we don't have a, a relationship that's so codependent that I have to get permission, but it's just like she says she's going on girls' night out. Mm -hmm. I say I'm going to guys' night out, and it just happens to be it's an AA meeting or an OA meeting. I kind of along, along the same lines with the kids. I have five, and uh, I try to get up early or do things at night, so um, – Things I have a little bit more free time in the morning. I do attend the same meeting, but uh, when it comes to sponsees and and that work, I I work that around my family. So, I mean, there was a time I was getting up at five and taking sponsee calls, um, and that's not the case now. But I have a break from eleven thirty to two thirty every day. So, my I schedule calls in there. You know, I try to get a workout in there at some point or do administrative work around the house, and then. Then I have a, a sponsee call at 2 o'clock, and then I get done work at 6.30. My drive home, I try to take two guys and, and listen to them one late at night after the kids are be in bed. So I, I try to work the program without her knowing, you know, the kids really it, it interfering. But it was kind of cool last night. We're out to dinner, and we were praying for different people. And <laughs> my daughter, Cecilia, she said, don't forget Harlan, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, it's just funny they know what they know what's going on they see that change you know they see, see the change and but I, I try to be respectful of, of because you know I could be program mr. program and really you know let my let my family slide and, and you know my, my the relationships I want the most that are like my, my my greatest accomplishment is my wife and kids nothing else in life nothing compares to them so I have to, you know, just like I have to work this program, I have to uh, keep 
working the relationship with my family. And I, it really it was prayer. The honest to goodness, I said, Lord, just work this out, figure this out for me. And then stuff just, really, it's, it's as simple as that. It fell in place. I know it sounds cheesy, but that's what it, I, and I just had to do it, so. <laughs> so we're, we, we're at uh, an hour and 43. We still have, there are still several pages in this book. It's a good book. I hope some of you have it already. We could stop here for questions and comment and go around the room, or we can go on reading. It's a workshop. What do we think? By show of hands, does anybody like to share? This is a we program. <laughs> All right, good. Then we'll go on reading. <laughs> AA has many single alcoholics who wish to marry and are in a position to do so. Some marry fellow AAs. How do they come out? On the whole, these marriages are very good ones. Their common suffering as drinkers, their common interests in AA and spiritual things often enhance such unions. It is only where boy meets girl on AA campus and love follows at first sight that difficulties may develop. The prospective partners need to be solid AAs and long enough acquainted to know that their, in, that, that their compatibility at spiritual, mental, and emotional levels is a fact and not wishful thinking. They need to be sure as possible that no deep-lying emotional handicap in either will be likely to rise up under later pressures to cripple them. The considerations are equally true and important for AAs who marry outside of AA with clear understanding, right grown-up attitudes, very happy results do follow. And what can be said for AA members who, for a variety of reasons, cannot have a family life? At first, many of these feel lonely, hurt, left out as they witness so much domestic happiness about them. If they cannot have this kind of happiness, can AA offer them satisfactions of similar worth durability? Yes, whenever they try hard to seek them out. Surrounded by so many AA friends, these so-called loners tell us they no longer feel alone. In partnership with others, women and men, they can devote themselves to any number of ideas, people, and constructive projects. Free of marital responsibilities, they can participate in enterprises which would be, be denied to family men and women. We daily see such members render prodigies of service and receive great joys in return. Where the possession of money and material things was concerned, our outlook underwent the same revolutionary change. With few exceptions, all of us has, had been spendthrifts. We threw money about in every direction with the purpose of pleasing ourselves and impressing other people. In our drinking time, we acted as if, money was, if the money supply was inexhaustible, though between binges, we'd sometimes go to the other extreme and become almost miserly. Without realizing it, we were just accumulating funds for the next spree. Money was the symbol of pleasure and self-importance. When our drinking had become much worse, money was, the only, was only an urgent requirement which could supply us with the next drink and the temporary comfort of oblivion it brought. Upon entering AA, these attitudes were sharply diversed, reversed, sorry, often going too, uh, much too far in the opposite direction. The spectacle of years of waste threw us into panic. There simply wouldn't be time, we thought, to rebuild our shattered fortunes. How could we ever take care of those awful debts, possess a decent home, 
educate the kids and set something by for old age. Financial importance was no longer our principal aim. We now clamored for material security. Even when we were well reestablished in our business, these terrible fears often continued to haunt us. This made us misers and penny pinchers all over again. Complete financial security we must have or else. We forget that most alcoholics in AA have an earning power considerably above average. We forget the immense goodwill of our brother AAs who were only too eager to help us better help us to better jobs when we deserve them. We forget the actual or potential financial insecurity that every human being in the world and worst of all, we forget God. In money matters, we had faith only in ourselves and not too much of that. This all meant, of course, that we were still far off balance. When a job still, like, still looked like a mere, meaning, mere means of getting money rather than an opportunity for service. When the acquisition of money for financial independence looked more important than a right dependence on God, we were still victims of unreasonable fears. And these were fears which would make a serene and useful, I'm sorry, and these fears which would make a serene and useful existence at any financial level completely impossible. And, you know, I, I, I was kind of in a rush to get to that point. You know, uh, I was employed when I got sober. I was employed when I became abstinent and recovered. I was fortunate there were people that aren't. Um, my jobs were always jobs that were in place to serve me. And I had um, some, some really interesting experiences. I had, um, I was in the garbage business. I used to sell garbage service. And I had an idea in my mind, I wanted to work for the most valuable company in the world. And I pursued it, I pursued it, I, I put a resume, and I, I graduated at the bottom of my class. I went to college for 10 years to get a four-year degree. There's no reason for me to be where I am today. But I was seeking the, to work for that company because I saw it as a lucrative, it was going to be a lucrative opportunity for me. It was a pursuit of financial well-being. And it, you know the you know you call it odd, call it whatever it is. But when I I I had I was ready to give up until I got direction from my sponsor who quoted this book. He said you have to look at your job as the opportunity to carry this message into that existence. You have to look at it as this job is your opportunity to represent this program in everything that you do. And when the, when when I changed perspective and looked at and went after it because it was to me an opportunity to be of service, right? Cuz I don't uh, my what, what I do, I go meet with people. The whole thing changed. The whole my whole the whole the whole the, the whole pursuit of it, the results I know what I know what you know. I believe I know why it turned around, and I eventually secured that position. And and you know, in in ten years, it just became you know another job I hated. Right? You know, I have to have I have to have and then, oh this freaking job. You know, that's just that's just the nature of the the nature of the beast. But but what what I'm what the point I'm trying to make is that all of our occupations, all of the things, when when we look at our occupations as the opportunity to to serve 
our God, to be a example of this program, the whole dynamic changes. The job is the job is there as as this opportunity, and the whole the whole the whole thing changed for me in my mind. See, see what Pete's saying, you know. So I have a lot of financial insecurity. I still, you know, it's great. I'm glad I do because it keeps me dependent on God. But it's funny that you brought that up and here because I'm, I'm going to try to start a new business and. I was talking to one of my, my sponsees, he's an older guy, and he has multiple businesses, and he said, Russ, he said, I became successful through God and using my business as service. Just not about money, because I never thought about the money aspect about it. He said, you have an opportunity in what you're trying to do to help someone in, with this way of life. He said, you're going to be doing physicals and exams. He said, you're going to connect with people. You have an opportunity. You're right there. The acres, of, acres of diamonds are right in front of you. For, for not for you, not for you to gain financially. Although that's, that could be a, you know, that could be part of it. But you have a chance to get to others and share this message with them. And I'm like, holy shit. I had to, I had to write my, my little bit of mission statement over. And we worked through it. My own sponsor helped me. It was great. That's nice. It was awesome. All right, but as time passed, we found that with the help of AA's 12 steps, we could lose those fears, no matter what our material prospects were. We could cheerfully perform humble labor without worrying about tomorrow. If our circumstances happened to be good, we no longer dreaded a change for the worse, for we had learned that these troubles could be turned into great values. It did not matter too much that our material condition, what our material condition was, but it did matter what our spiritual condition was. Money gradually became our servant and not our master. It became a means of, ex- of, of exchanging love and service with those about us. When with God's help, we calmly accepted our lot, then we found we could live at peace with ourselves and show others who still suffered the same fears that they could get over them too. We found that freedom from fear was more important than freedom from want. Let's here take note of our improved outlook upon the problems of, our person, of personal importance, power, ambition, and leadership. These were reefs upon which many of us came to shipwreck during our drinking careers. Practically every boy in the United States dreams of becoming our president. He wants to be his country's number one man. As he gets older and sees the impossibility of this, He can smile good-naturedly at his childhood dream. In later life, he finds that real happiness is not to be found in just trying to be number one man or even a first raider in the heartbreaking struggle for money, romance, or self-importance. He learns that he can be content as long as he plays well whatever cards life deals him. He's still ambitious, but not absurdly so, because he can now see and accept actual reality he's willing to stay right size. But not so with alcoholics. When AA was quite young, a number of eminent psychologists and doctors made an exhaustive study of a good-sized group of so-called problem drinkers. The doctors weren't to trying to find out how different we were from one another. They sought to find whatever personality traits, if any, this group of alcoholics had in common. They finally came up with a conclusion that shocked the AA members of that time. These distinguished men had the nerve to say that most alcoholics under investigation were still childish, emotionally sensitive, and grandiose. 
<laughs> How we alco alcoholics did resent that verdict. It's a verdict, it's not a sentence, just so you know. We would not believe that our adult dreams were often truly childish, and considering the rough deal life had given us, we felt it perfectly natural that we were sensitive. As to our grandiose behavior, we insisted that we had been possessed of nothing but high and legitimate ambition to win the battle of life. In the years since, however, most of us has come to agree with those doctors. We have, had much, we have had a much keener look at ourselves and those about us. We have seen that we were prodded by unreasonable fears or anxieties into making a life business of winning fame, money, and what we thought was leadership. So false pride became the reverse side of that ruinous coin marked fear. We simply had to be number one people to cover up our deep-lying deep lying inferiorities. In fitful successes, we boasted of greater feats to be done. In defeat, we were bitter. If we didn't have, have much of any worldly successes, we became depressed and cowed. Then, we, then people said we were the inferior type. Uh, then people said we were the inferior type. But now we see ourselves as chips off the same old block. At heart, we had all been abnormally fearful. It mattered little, little whether we had sat on the shore of life drinking ourselves into forgetfulness or had plunged in recklessly and willfully beyond our depth and ability. The result of the same. The results was the result was the same. All of us had nearly perished in the sea of alcohol. But today in well-matured AAs, these distorted drives have been restored in something like their true purpose and direction. We no longer strive to dominate or rule those about us in order to gain self-importance. We no longer seem fame and honor in order to be praised. When by de devoted service to family, friends, business, or community, we attract widespread affection and are sometimes singled out for posts of greater responsibility and trust, we try to be humbly grateful and exert ourselves the more in the spirit of love and service. True leadership, we find, depends upon, our, uh, depends upon able example, not upon vain displays of power or glory. Good. Still more wonderful is the feeling that we do not have to be especially distinguished among our fellows in order to be useful and profoundly happy. Not many of us can be lead leaders of prominence nor do we wish to be. Service gladly rendered, obligations squarely met, troubles well accepted or solved with God's help. The knowledge that at home or in the world outside we are partners in common effort. The well understood fact that in God's sight all human beings are important. The proof that love freely given surely brings a full return. The certainty that we are no longer isolated and alone in a self-constructed prisons. The surety that we need no longer be square pegs in round holes, but can fit and belong in God's scheme of things. These are the permanent and legitimate satisfactions of right living for which no amount of pomp and circumstance, no heap of material possessions could possibly substitute. Could possibly be substitutes. True ambition is not what we thought it was. True ambition is the deep desire to live usefully and walk humbly under the grace of God. There's one more paragraph, but it just sums up the whole thing. And with that, we're going to close. No final thoughts? 
That was heavy. I'm I'm driven to tears right now. That was just that was that was pretty heavy. I don't know if I have any words to say, but Russ is never short of them, so I'll let him. Hey, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> just uh, you know, that we're obligated to to share this message, and you know, it's of service and self-sacrifice, and just helping someone else, whether it's in program or life in general. But if you're not in program, you're not you're not going to know it applies to the rest of your life. So now, the but the the final thought that I said I, my thinking was twelve step work was dragging drunks off of bar stools and things like that. This 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 clearly articulates that it's it's way more than what I thought it was. Right? It's it's way the twelve this twelve step work is way more than essentially sponsoring somebody or showing up at a meeting to be there. It's about being a good example, about carrying this message into our affairs and everything that we do and walking in the sunlight of the Spirit.